The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for the fact that as we just sang, you are a shepherd to us, that you have committed yourself to us, the people that you saved. You haven't just saved us and left us. You have saved us and have committed yourself to walk us home, to be leader and Lord, guide and protector. So we are a sheltered people because you are our shepherd. This is a glorious truth and most important for us to remember amidst storms, amidst challenges, amidst confusion. To know that you lead, that you protect. You care for us and will never leave us, will not forsake us for nothing. You're ours, we're yours. Well, this is good, necessary blessing. Help us to sit in that and to, to remember it and to bank on it. And from that then, inform us, Lord, about how to respond to a world around us that is anything but shepherding and sheltering. Particularly as we follow you, we find that the world that does not will not be friendly will not be home for us. So Lord, help us to to reckon you as shepherd and shelter and to know then how to respond well to difficulty here. And towards that end, Lord, speak from this passage. Make your truth clear to us. Help us to think well about it and to rest in you in it. So make my words clear here. Speak the truth. Help us to listen well and to receive well. And for that, Lord, we need your Holy Spirit in power to minister to us. We're just people. We're just people. Prone to miss things and misinterpret things and misstate things. And so will you, Lord, speak, and will you, Lord, help us hear. Spirit of God, will you own our hearts, own the room here, own the atmosphere, own the temperature, own the distractions, own this place, and speak to teach us and guide us and grow us up and cause us to live in ways that are sweet. We pray this for the good of your church here and for the the glory of the name of Jesus. And we pray for the glory of the name of Jesus in those who are not yet in your church. That as, as we learn and we grow in how we respond to the world around us, that it would be winsome and wooing and the people would be called as the gospel is commended, as good as it is. So help us, Lord, for the sake of us, for the sake of the world, and for the honor of Jesus. Guide this time. Speak truth. Have your way with us, we pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. 
turn our attention this morning to Luke chapter 22, where we've been looking at Jesus' last section of teaching before the cross. Using the opportunity of the Passover meal, Jesus explained his mission in light of that ancient event back in Egypt, way back long ago, saying, essentially, he is the great Passover lamb, slain for those who believe so that those who believe and hide behind his blood, hide beneath his blood, will be passed over by the wrath of God, saved from it and saved into a new covenant of great promise, into a new life. That is about to happen. As Jesus is speaking, it's about to happen the, the next day. He's explaining this crucial and amazing plan of God. But the disciples that sit there, the eleven, Judas has at some point left to carry out his betrayal, but the 11 who sit there and hear him explaining this, they still don't get it. They're not tracking with it still. Well, he's talking about his sacrifice for people. They commence an argument about their own power over people. They think there's going to be a kingdom administration set up any day now, and I want to be top dog, says one. No, says the other, that's going to be me. And they're bickering back and forth about who will be in power, who will be considered greatest. And Jesus takes that argument and turns it to talk about servant leadership. That's how authority in the kingdom of God is to be expressed, as servant leadership. To love and serve, to bless and help the ones beneath your authority, beneath your influence or power in some way or another. That's how Jesus the King has used his authority among us to serve and to sacrifice, to bless. And seeing that, seeing his use of his power to serve and to bless us, we, we find they're both a model and enabling power. A model, we see that's how we are supposed to be, but enabling power because we see that in God the Spirit moves in us and causes us to see, yes, he is most important. And not to look out for number one, he's number one. And he has me. He's going to care for me. I, I don't need to use my power to secure myself. He has me. So seeing this, this, this truth of the gospel is what actually changes the human heart and deals with the problem of the abuse of power, which is human. Makes us more than we were. And so we don't abuse power. But of course, that takes faith, faith to come to Christ in the first place, and then faith to remember, to see and to remember that he has me. Faith is required. Faith is at the root of every Christian virtue, and so Satan attacks faith. The last part of the passage last week, Jesus says that the leaders in the kingdom and, in fact, everybody in the kingdom, we're going to face spiritual attack, and what is going to be attacked is not just at the top, but at the root. It's going to be attacking faith cause us to not see Christ, cause us to not trust Christ. And so Jesus says he's going to intercede to uphold our faith, to help us to see him and trust him. That was last week, and that brings us to a new topic this morning that is in some way related. If we end last week talking about spiritual opposition, spiritual attack, this morning we come to another kind of threat or resistance or opposition less emphasizing the spiritual, more emphasizing the temporal, the, the resistance, the rejection that we will meet in the world. That's what Jesus is going to talk about this morning. 
in his last section of deliberate teaching before the cross. It's kind of noteworthy that he leaves us here at this point of, of thinking soberly about opposition. Let me read verses 35 to 38. Then we'll discuss in two observations what the opposition kind of looks like and, and then how to deal with that. So this is Luke 22, beginning in verse 35. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, Nothing. And he said to them, But now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It's enough. Short passage, two observations. Here's the first. Because the world rejects Jesus we should be prepared for rejection too. Because the world rejects Jesus, we should be prepared for rejection too. Verse 35 begins with a question that recalls two previous situations that are both a little bit different but are similar. In chapters 9 and 10, Jesus sent out his followers out into the the world, the, the countryside, the villages, the cities, the towns of Judea and Samaria, sent them out proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come near in Jesus. And in both cases, he said that they would probably find opposition, they might be turned away, but he also said that eventually they would be welcomed and received. They're going to go out into a, a countryside in which their message resonates, the kingdom of God, Messiah, they're going to they're going to speak that, and they will find, place after place after place, they will find strangers who will, who will hear that, who will receive it, who will welcome them in, who will host them and provide for all their needs. So, since you're going to be well-received, generally speaking, don't bother to carry everything you're going to need. Don't take along all your provisions. So, when I sent you out at those times, telling you not to carry any extra money, extra provisions, did you lack anything? And the answer, of course, no, didn't lack anything. Friendly, welcoming people provided all that we needed. They heard we were proclaiming, and, and yes, some didn't want anything to do with you, and therefore with us, but plenty of people welcomed us in and took care of us, sufficiently provided for. Yes, that's what happened. Well, not anymore. That's the flow here. Well, not anymore. That's going to change. Verse 36. Now, take your bags. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. He's telling them the opposite of what he just told them previously. Things were one way, but now be prepared to take care of yourselves. For... 
You know, it's the connection. Here's, here's what causes the change. Here's why change. Why now you can't count on the world responding to you like that, but in fact can bank on it counting the exact, responding the exact opposite way. For, verse 37, at the beginning and the end of the verse both, he's emphasizing this. I tell you, this is the truth. This is why you have to carry your provisions for now, yourselves, protect yourselves. For the Scripture which is written about me, must be, has to be, is going to be fulfilled. And he quotes from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, it's familiar to many of us, but it is an amazing passage. In all of the prophets, this chapter is particularly profound, critical, in fact. It brings out, it, it discloses, it predicts so many remarkable truths about this great suffering servant. You move through Isaiah, and there's a servant of the Lord. Initially, he's speaking about Israel, but Israel is, is the failed servant, and as he moves on, he comes eventually to another servant, this great servant. And here in Isaiah 53, he lays out so many things about what God is going to do through this suffering servant, wounded for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities, which God laid on him instead of on us. A lamb led to slaughter in our place as his soul makes an offering for our sin. Crushed by God, put to grief, but he will live again and see his offspring and prolong his days. He will conquer and will divide up the spoils like a victor, a champion. This is all, Isaiah 53 is all written about Jesus. He said so before, he says so again here. This is the chapter, it's written about me, and it's going to be fulfilled. It can't not be fulfilled, it's going to come to pass. And it's a remarkable chapter because as we read that, we see this is the gospel according to Isaiah. This is the gospel in the Old Testament centuries and centuries and centuries before it happened. This is how God intervenes, steps into the world to save a people, to provide a substitute sacrifice. You hear all the for us, for our one on whom our sin is laid, one who makes atonement for many, one who delivers people, human beings, into righteousness before God. This is the gospel, and it is glorious. All that God has done to save, Isaiah 53. The whole chapter is about Jesus. But what he emphasizes in this particular passage that we're looking at here in Luke is something small and something slightly different than all of the scope of what God has done to save. He, he grabs a particular piece of that and emphasizes it for us. He was numbered with the transgressors. That's what Jesus pulls out here. Interesting. Counted among sinners, counted among lawbreakers. By whom? Well, track that through the passage. This is important to note here. He was despised 
and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. That's verse 3 from Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. That's verse 7. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, cut off from the land of the living. Verse 8, numbered with the transgressors. Verse 12, there's the theme moving through that same chapter. And who's active there? People. The people. It is, it's all in the context, of, it's, the, it's in the context of the chapter about what God has done to save. But the theme running through that is, here's what people, what men, human beings did. People themselves, those in Jerusalem at this very hour, those throughout all of, all of Judea, people who thought themselves friendly, positively disposed towards Jesus, excited about Jesus, who cheered him when he rode into the city, in fact, by tomorrow, are going to be screaming condemnation, reviling him and calling for his head, putting him among sinners worthy of capital punishment. People. Those who should receive him. Those who should see what he's go what's going on here. By this time tomorrow, he's going to be dead at their hands. In the grave. People themselves, tragically and shockingly, are going to reject him and cast him aside. Now, it is all the plan of God. Certainly, that's, that's what the larger context of the chapter points out. This is what God is doing. God offers him up. But what Jesus is emphasizing here for us to, to kind of catch and, and think about is that this happens, this plan of God happens through the rejection of the populace, of the rejection of the leaders, the rejection of the influencers in society. That's the way it is to be by God's plan. That rejection is coming to Jesus. Though it shouldn't be. That's wrong on so many levels. It's wrong on a logical level. It's wrong on a moral level. But it is. It's coming to Jesus. And therefore, because of that, it's coming to his followers too. Be prepared to provide for yourselves because they won't. They are not on board with me or with you. They are against you now. They will reject you too, just like they reject me. Rejection and suffering is the way it is. And through it, God accomplishes his plan. Isaiah 53, through the rejection of suffering, God accomplishes the plan. It has been that way ever since. In this period of time, while we await the return of Christ, God's people are on one page and the world is on another. Different pages. 
And we are made to suffer the consequences of that. And the consequences vary extremely widely from the, the quite mild where you, you say one thing and, and friends say something else and they kind of look at you and say, mm, I don't, that's kind of strange. Or you went to church on Sunday? Okay, well, just quite mild. Just, you've kind of sent, I'm a little bit on the outside, all the way to they behead me and my kids before me. You know, the consequences are vastly different. They vary extremely widely. But make no mistake, ever since this point, we have been on one page, we the people of God, we the people who follow Jesus, and those who don't follow Jesus are on a different page. And that's the way it is. Now for them, he's telling them that because that is coming out of left field and coming fast. And they do not see that coming. He's got something to prepare them for so that, that afterwards they'll be able to look back and say, oh, you, you knew that, you told us. Okay, this is not wrong. This was part of the plan, I see. So he's helping them with that. But for us, it's probably true that for most of us here who are believers, this, this kind of idea, this Christ rejected and his people with him, like him, that's a familiar concept to most of us, probably. Probably. But I think we still have a hard time with it. Probably in two slightly different ways. First, no one likes being rejected. No one likes that. Feeling disliked or feeling on the outside or, or being caused to suffer in some way, nobody likes that. So sometimes it gets pretty easy for us to hold rather lightly and quietly and compromisingly, if I can make up a word, to hold lightly and quietly and compromisingly to Christian truth or kingdom values. Now what I'm not saying here is that we should always hold virulently and angrily and, and strongly and loudly and boldly in your face. No, I'm not saying that. But do you find yourself, even maybe right now as I bring this up, is God maybe just jabbing you just a little bit, bringing something to your mind about where you've loosened your grip on Christ in some way in an effort to be more accepted by those around you. Pause and think. It might be small. You might be a college student and afraid of what your roommate will think, you don't read your Bible in public. You don't even put it on the bookshelf because somebody will see that you own a Bible and probably laugh at you. And so it's left at home. Let go just a little bit. It might be you, you make a comment that you know will be accepted and you mean it one way, but you know it will be misunderstood and laughed at and it'll help you get along. So you didn't, didn't totally compromise, but you know they didn't really get it. That's okay. In some way, 
just letting go just a little bit. We don't like rejection, and it's hard, but you should expect it, though. The being rejected by Jesus is the way it, being rejected because of Jesus is the way it is. It's the way it is. We're on different pages, and we should expect that that there will be people who in some way are not in accord with us if we are in accord with Jesus. To be alert to the, the strong temptation to just kind of try to get along. You bump into rejection and conflict. Not everywhere and always, but the point is that it's normal and it's right, in fact. It's okay. So does, does something need to change in your life? Is God poking on some little way that you're letting go of Christian conviction, letting go of Jesus in some way to kind of get along and become more acceptable? Does that need to change? But in the opposite direction, if that direction is kind of the, the temptation to try really hard to fly under the radar and be incognito, the other direction is kind of a little more. Do you find yourself anxious and maybe angry or combative or defensive even at this normal rejection from the world? Have you ever thought or said something like this? And I'll emphasize it. America was founded as a Christian country. And they, whoever they are, are trying to take it away. It's under attack. And we better fight back to save it. To reclaim America. Ever said that or thought that or heard that? Never mind the, I think, very legitimate questions as to what was actually going on in the founding of this country. But people say that. That's, that I hear that frequently from Christians. We've got to fight back and take this place back. It's, been, it's being corrupted, it's being undermined, it's being taken away. And true, public sympathies are rapidly tilting away from biblical Christian faith, for sure. Okay, for sure. Rapidly so. Christian values and Christian worldview, let alone Christians themselves. And the Christian church in the United States has enjoyed a long time of unusual favoritism and preferential treatment. We swear in the highest leader in the country with his hand on a Bible. Not on a Quran, not on nothing. That's preferential treatment to us. That's gone on for a long time. That day's coming to an end. And as you, as you realize that, the time has passed and it is suddenly passing quickly. Do you find yourself angry or worried about that? Or called to arms even, so to speak? To try to stop it. This new America that doesn't even pretend to be a Christian nation anymore. What happened? I'm kind of making up the emotion there. But do you, do you feel that? Is, that? is that in you? or your family members, or your friends, if not you. 
I think there's a lot of that present today, particularly in the forms of fear and anger. That's there amongst all of us who at the same time would also clearly say, sure, I totally get it. Jesus is rejected, and so are Jesus' followers. I totally tracked what you were saying in the first part of the sermon. But here's the anger and fear. Something's not fitting there. We acknowledge that what Jesus warned us about is, is the way it is, but, but really, we're not really prepared for this. We're not really internalizing what Jesus said. Often, we, we really think and want God's kingdom to triumph in the world. We think that's the way it's supposed to be because that would be what's right. Certainly what we desire, what we would prefer, it seems necessary and certainly preferential that the Christian kingdom triumph, that God's values run, that he be honored. That's what we want, that's what we feel. But, but check yourself, Christian. If, if, you, if that's where you are, at least sometimes, but you hear this teaching from Jesus about rejection, check yourself. Or if you find yourself not, not kind of angry, but trying to fly under the radar and, and accommodate, check yourself. There's something that, that is not right in us about how we're perceiving, receiving, and interacting with this rejection in the world. It, it's supposed to be that way. Jesus said so. It's right. Now, morally right? No. No, no, I'm not saying that. But the way it is. It's the way it is. The world does really move away from him and away from us. The world really does sometimes move against him and against us. During this time, we really do have no lasting country here. Really. But maybe our fear or our anger gives us away and shows that we have been living a little too much in Christian America and not enough in the kingdom, looking for the city that is yet to come. Put that a different way. If we find our lives being changed and the atmosphere in which we live being changed to more closely resemble what Jesus said would be and what the New Testament was like, but we're angry about that, we're wrong. We're wrong. This is the normal Christian life. And critically, it's the livable Christian life. That's what's behind the fear. We think, if this happens, if they take away this country that I've grown up knowing or expecting, then, then what will be, how can we, what will happen? It's the livable Christian life. This Christian life of, a, of an individual and of a people amidst 
a world surrounded by people who do not agree, who reject us, who are on different pages with us. It is the normal and the livable Christian life. Do you remember verse 35? Why did Jesus bring up verse 35 first? To remind them, last time I sent you out into a situation where you might have been tempted to say, where's the food going to come from? Did you lack anything? I had you, didn't I? Yeah, I provided through them, but it was me. It was me. It wasn't them. It was me. I led you to those houses. I knew they were out there. I knew where you needed to go. I provided for you. I cared for you. I had you. Why does Jesus then tell them, and what's written in Isaiah 53 has to be fulfilled. It's coming up. It's going to happen. So that they know he has all the suffering too. He's got that under control. He knows that as well. To alert them, God has this all, the whole situation, all of the rejection is part of the plan, and through it, God accomplishes his purposes. And in the meantime, little flock, what do you lack? Not a thing. Jesus wants very clearly for them to see that, for us to see that. Yes, rejection is normal, and we'll be fine. We'll be fine. Not because it's right. Not because it's right, but because God's God. God has us, God has the rejection, God has the suffering, and through the rejection and the suffering and all that's wrong with that, through that, God accomplishes his plan of saving a people and building a kingdom. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. We have nothing to fear. Nothing to be angry and fight for to hold on to. We can let go of our lives entrusting them to the God who has us and has it, has everything in his hands. This is good news, especially in the face of, of highly uncertain times. It's okay. It's okay. Not because it's okay. It's okay. Rest in him, he has you. Which then brings us to, okay, then how do we deal with the world? How do, how do we respond to the world? Here's the second point. The kingdom spreads in this world by humble, nonviolent proclamation. The kingdom spreads in this world by humble, nonviolent proclamation. So we will be rejected. So in a real way, we are at odds with the world around us. This is not our home yet. Tension, conflict, hardship will arise, yes. But still, Jesus sends us out into that world. That's behind the, the idea of when I sent you out before, and now take your bags. And they're, he's talking about journey, traveling. You're going out. I'm sending you out still. As he said repeatedly throughout this book, he's calling his people to go as sent ones into the world. Not hunkered down in a bunker, advancing. So, how do we go out into this world that he's describing? It's going to reject, they're going to watch these people kill Jesus tomorrow, and then shortly after he's going to make really clear, I send you to them. How? How do you approach that? How do you go out there? Well, 
like Jesus, humble and nonviolent, which may at first seem like an odd conclusion to observe in a passage in which he tells them to buy swords. How do you get humble and nonviolent from that? How do you read that? Aren't swords inherently about violence? Aren't swords about power being exerted, forced? Well, in fact, this is a pretty important question because a lot of people have taken this very passage, significantly and tragically misunderstood it, and come out the other side, literal militant Christians. Or have taken this passage and come out the other side misunderstanding it and have assumed that Jesus is assigning to the church the right to rule. Or have read this and said, this is the Christian version of Islam. You spread the religion with the sword. There it is. On the lips of Jesus, nonetheless. No. There are, in fact, several reasons for us to conclude that Jesus is calling us from this very passage and from its surrounding to humble and nonviolent approach to the world. First, the passage itself, verse 36, the, passage that can, the verse that contains the command to buy the swords. Verse 36 is symbolic. It is matching. It's the matching parallel to verse 35, which itself is symbolic. Verse 35, we were never, the, the disciples that were sent out, whether it be the 12 or the, the 72 plus, they were never meant to literally go barefoot. Don't take any sandals. None? No, I don't mean that literally. They were never meant to go completely empty-handed with no change of clothes and no money in their pockets at all. He meant, don't worry about carrying along everything you're going to need to provide for yourself. I'm going to provide for you. You're going to live off the land, so to speak. I'm going to provide for you out there. So don't, don't worry about taking everything. Trust me to provide for you. As you go out, I'm going to provide for you in this way. That's what he meant. Not rigidly, literally, don't wear any sandals. And so verse 36, parallel to that, we shouldn't be looking for a literal meaning to parallel a figurative one, a symbolic one. We should be looking for a symbolic one to parallel a symbolic one. Second, the, the nonviolent is confirmed by verse 38. When they took it literally and count, one, two, we have two swords for the 11 of us. Twelve counting you, Jesus. Two swords. Jesus' reply indicates that they misunderstood him. That's enough, he says. Well, not really. Not if we're going to fight. Nine guys without a sword in a sword fight are in trouble. And shouldn't they, the nine who don't have a sword, shouldn't they, because he just said so, if he means it literally, they have cloaks, shouldn't they head out tomorrow, sell them, and buy swords, like he just said. If that's what he means literally, 
That's what they should do. But he says, no, that's enough. Don't do that, which reveals clearly he didn't mean it literally. And third, verses 49 to 51, right below, right coming up, we'll come to this eventually here, 49 to 51, Judas comes back with an armed crowd, and the disciples think, surely now is the time to fight. And while some ask him, should we fight, somebody else just starts swinging, wounds a man, and Jesus rebukes him for it. And reverses what the sword did, heals him. And then chastises Judas and company. What do you think? You're coming against an armed mob? We're not armed. We're not armed. Why are you? Just arrest us. And fourth, we could cite the whole rest of the book of Acts and the New Testament that shows the disciples finally got this, finally did understand it, because there's no more swordplay. There is no Christian militia. There is no insurgency. There is no violent resistance to arrest. There's no violent jailbreaks. There's no violence at all. The church is highly organized. It has leaders, it has a structure, it has meetings. But there, so there's the capability to organize. But they don't form an army. They don't spread the message with force. This is not, this is not the Christian version of Islam. This is not the Christian takeover of the state. This is not the Christian advancing at point of sword. You must obey. You must obey this word. Two swords is enough because Jesus never meant for his people to wield swords in the first place. He never meant to communicate violence or force or armed opposition. Now, as an aside, notice, two guys already had swords. Two guys already had them, carrying them around. They lived in a society very different than ours today. A society in which people were accustomed to the need to defend themselves. The police are not a phone call away. When you walk the dusty roads from town A to town B, there's nothing in the middle except maybe a band of thieves or some wolves. So people were accustomed to defending themselves and caring for themselves. This is not about Jesus not speaking for nor speaking against the topic of personal self-defense. He's not touching that. What he is speaking about is Christians and how we are to advance, to go out into, to advance into the world, spreading the kingdom of God to see it grow in the face of hostility and rejection of some sort. And what he's saying, to reword it, get ready for resistance, be prepared to take care of and provide for yourselves amidst physical hostility, but you've misunderstood me if you think I'm telling you to fight. I already told you how to respond. I already told you how to respond to those who hate you, your enemies, to those who curse you 
and abuse you and strike you and legally oppress you. Can you think of where he spoke to that? How will the world come to understand that this God is a God of mercy and forgiveness of offense if his people literally or figuratively fight and exact their just due in the face of every offense? How will the world come to understand that there's a, there's a message here from a God who is a God of grace? a God of love. If his people are angry and resistant, how they'll understand that is when we love our enemies and do good to those who hate us. He said, bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. To the one who takes away your cloak, give him your tunic too. This is how my people are. This is how the people of God are. Oh, how blessed you are when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of me. Rejoice in that day. Get ready for it. It's coming. I, I mentioned it way back when I preached that Sermon on the Mount back then, but that day is coming tomorrow. It's coming right up. I told you about it, and here it is. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, great is your reward in heaven. For this is what they did to the prophets. It's what they're going to do to me, and they're going to do the same to you. Rejoice, though, for great is your reward in heaven. Humble and nonviolent and gracious, rejoicing love. A giving away of our stuff and a giving away of ourselves and a laying down of our lives for those who are against us. That is our response to the rejection of the world. That's how we carry the kingdom message forward. That's how we commend a gracious and forgiving king. Not by becoming an armed state or by force pressing on people. No. We need to hear this so that we understand how it is that we, like lambs led to slaughter, go out into the world. We need to hear that. And the world, those around us need to hear that, that that's what we are. If you're not a Christian, you're here today, I think you need to hear this too because I think as I interact with, with folks who don't believe like, about Jesus like I do, I, as I think, maybe this isn't where you are, but I think lots of people who are not Christians think that Christians are out to win and force down, check if this is you, force down your throat what I believe. If you're a Christian, don't you think people think that? That what we're out to do is win and force our way. We'd use swords if we could. We use political machinations if we can. What we're out to do, though, is force our way. That's what people think. That's frightening. That's what's frightening about absolute truth, because as soon as that gets power, I know what's coming next. Abuse. 
absolute truth, some power comes along, trouble for those who disagree is about to come. No. That is not how Christians are. That is not how followers of Christ are. Now, let me be really clear and honest here. We do, in fact, believe that God is right. That he is the only good. That the scriptures, the the Old Testament and the New Testament, are the one and only word from God. We absolutely believe that. That heaven and hell are real and the only two destinies for humanity. And that faith in this biblical Jesus, trusting your whole self to him, is the only way to avoid the wrath of God. We completely believe that, uncompromisingly so. And we're going to speak about that. And we're going to speak about related other things commanded in here. We think those things are true too. Things that touch on how life should be lived. We're going to speak on those things too. And we believe them absolutely, not as suggestions or ideas. We believe this is the truth, the one truth. But we do not and will not strike or attack or hurt or force or coerce. That is not right. That is not Jesus. That is not Jesus' people. We will sacrifice in love, serving while we warn and plead and attempt to persuade, and in this country, then we'll put it out there and let it be decided by whatever portion of the population gets to decide, and if we lose, we'll live with that, and we'll be fine. We won't agree, but we'll be fine. We'll live with it, and we'll be good citizens of this country and attempt to bless the city in which we live. And we will still, even if we lose and you win and your way becomes the way it is, we will still love you and sacrifice for you and lay down our lives for you and bless you and give you the cloaks off our back. Because that's what Jesus is like. That's what Jesus is like. We love those with whom we disagree. We love those who disagree with us, who oppose us, even who reject us, even those who would be called enemies. We love and pray for and bless and forgive. We sacrifice for them. Right, Christians? That's what we're like, right? We love those who oppose us. We embrace those who reject us. We sacrifice for and seek to bless those who hate us. We turn the other cheek when struck. That's what we're like, right? Huh. Hmm. Well, maybe not. Which is a problem because the Sermon on the Mount is not a suggestion, it's a command. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you if it's okay for you. It's not what it says.
humble and gracious and rejoicing in giving away of our stuff and ourselves to those who hate us is not where we live, but that's what God commands us. We fall far short of that. And if we're honest, that sounds astoundingly impossible. Who can do that? The one who was numbered among the transgressors, he alone did it. He did not transgress the Sermon on the Mount. We do. And tell a lie about him all the time. That's what we do. He was included among the transgressors so that you and I who are transgressors would not be. He was crucified under curse that the wrath of God would pass over us and fall on him. This is the one Christian, this is the one who loved you when you rejected him and said no to his ways to his word. And this is the one who, knowing that, went to the cross anyway and has worked in sovereign power and grace to give you life, who upholds you amidst the rejection of the world and promises to carry you to the city that is to come, promises to meet all of your needs in every moment of every day and will never reject you. Never. May the Spirit open your eyes to him and move you to live well with him and for him here, now, amidst whatever rejection you meet in this world, and you will. That is normal. But we can live in the middle of that rejection if our eyes will see the one who was rejected in our place and who welcomes you in and will never leave you nor forsake you. Let me pray. Father, open our eyes by your Spirit. Open our eyes and show us Jesus. We walk into a world that is in varying degrees, widely varying degrees, difficult. It is difficult for us to love in that world, to lay down our lives in that world, even for our friends, for our family members, let alone for those who are against us. God, help us, please. Would you show us your goodness? Will you show us Jesus? Open our eyes, Lord. Help us to see him. And move us then by your Spirit to follow his decrees in hope, in joy, in joy. To live as a people who are living for something else, a city that is yet to come, with foundations actually, not, not built on sand, but solid. A city that you are the architect and builder of, 
city built for us, waiting for us. There's eyes to see that and to hope in that and to live for it. And so then to be happy here as we lay down our lives for this city. Build us up, Lord. This is hard. This is impossible apart from your spirit, so help us. Be honored in us. Honor your name here in us, we pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.